Everyone's heard of Jesus. Everyone knows Jesus. Everyone likes Jesus. From Madonna, who did that concert with a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy, right down to David Beckham, who's got Jesus tattooed on his hip. You talk to any religion, they've got a little box to put Jesus in. Yeah, we like Jesus. You talk to maybe your friends and family, and they'll say, yeah, I know Jesus. They might even say, yeah, I like Jesus. But if you push them on it, if you say, okay, tell me about Jesus, it's actually astonishing how little people really know. It's amazing, because out of what they don't know, out of their lack of knowledge, they kind of fill in a different Jesus, a made-up Jesus of their own creation. Now, we're in a series as a church right now where we're looking at the real Jesus. We're seeking to encounter and meet with the real Jesus of the New Testament. We don't want to hear about a watered-down, low-fat, caffeine-free Jesus. We want the real thing. We don't want just another hippie with a beard and long hair. We don't want just another religious guy telling us all to be nice. We want to see what Jesus really did, how he really acted, what he really said. We want to meet with the real Jesus today. And we're doing this by going through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you don't have a Bible along, please just stick your hand up in the air so we can name and shame you. No, I'm only kidding. It's so we can get you one of our red Bibles at the back so that you can follow along. We're looking at Matthew chapter 2, and if you have one of our church red Bibles, it's page 966. Page 966. So this morning we're going to look at two things in this passage. We're going to look at three different responses to Jesus, and then we're going to look at the respond to Jesus. And as I read Matthew chapter 2, I'd like you just to try and answer one very helpful question which I got from a guy called Phil Moore. As you read this, you're going to see three responses to Jesus. Two of them are reasonable. One of them is unreasonable. And I'd like you to try and work out which response is unreasonable. So Matthew Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As Jesus was born, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, now your Bible translation might say wise men, but these guys weren't kind of, you know, a Mr. Miyagi or a Yoda of the Old Testament with wise statements. They were astrologers, they were from another religion. And they came from the east to Jerusalem, verse 2, and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're the religious guys of the day, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you refined him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. 
After they heard, the, heard from the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Seems like odd gifts to give a baby, doesn't it? And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We're nearly there. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And, his, and he said, get, go, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, that in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Okay, so that's a long bit of the Bible there that I just read. But, as I said, we're going to look at Three responses, and then we're going to look at the reason we must respond. So, have you spotted the two reasonable and the one unreasonable response? To help you along the way, I've, I've named the three responses. We've got the wise response, the worried response, and the woeful response. You may notice, the smarter ones of you, that we're sponsored by the letter W this morning, just like Sesame Street. Wise, worried, and woeful. So let's kick off with the wise response, okay? This is the response that the wise men, or the magi as they're in our Bible, this is their response. We don't know too much about these guys. They were... um, They were from Persia, we sort of know that, and we know that they studied the stars. They studied them to try and interpret the future. They did a a kind of magic. That's where we get the word magic from. It's from this word magi. And these guys, they're pagan, okay? They're not Jewish in the slightest. They have every right not to give a monkeys about the king of the Jews who's been born. Yet, they end up coming to see Jesus, despite the fact they're from a different religion, they're from a different culture, and they're from a different country. And they come to him because of two major major factors. Factor number one. Centuries earlier, there was a bloke that some of you might have heard of called Daniel, and he was the chief of the Babylonian and Persian Magi. 
And he prophesied in a book which he's written in the Old Testament called Daniel about a coming Messiah, a king who's going to come and he will rule forever. And so these magi were probably aware of what Daniel had spoken of. The second big factor, this is the real biggie, okay? It's that God himself gave them a sign. He decided to speak to them in a language that they would understand. He gave them a star. Was this an ordinary star? Oh, no. This is a special star. This was a star that moved through the night sky, guiding them on where to go. It was the ancient sat-nav system of the day, okay? And I think it must have run on the same technology as my sat-nav, okay? Because it starts off by taking them to six miles away from their destination, and it took them two years to get there. And as well as this, they have to get out and then ask for directions anyway before they get to the finishing line in Bethlehem. I don't know if your tom-tom works the same way, but that's certainly how mine does. So these magi, they've had two things to respond in because of the prophecies they'd heard and the star that moved the sky. So they leave their, they leave their country, they travel for two years, and they end up worshipping King Jesus, the King of the Jews. And they gave him some presents. Now they're pretty odd. Normally when we give presents to some, a newborn baby... If it's a boy, you get them something blue, maybe a little blue t-shirt. If it's a girl, maybe some nice pink socks. If you can't work out which gender it is, you buy them a white t-shirt or something plain, don't you? But these guys, they decide to get Jesus some gold. This is to show him as the king that he was. They get him some frankincense, which in their culture is what they seem to have offered to the gods, showing that he'd be worshipped as God. And they gave him myrrh, which is to show that he will die and that he will be buried because myrrh was an expensive product you rubbed onto a dead body before it was wrapped and buried. So, this is a radical response. It's a time-consuming response. It's an expensive response for these guys. But, was it reasonable? Let's do a quick poll. If you think it was a reasonable response to Jesus, I want you to just stick your hand in the air right now. few of you tentatively putting it up. If you think it was an unreasonable response, put your hand up. One. I'm sorry, John. I'm going to go with the majority here. I think it was a reasonable response. Good effort, though, John. Um, I think it was a reasonable response to Jesus. You You see, for these guys, they'd had God speak to them and give them a sign. And when they see this sign, they realize that this guy is the king. He's the king that Daniel prophesied would come and would reign forever. What they heard about King Jesus changed everything for them. It meant they had to get up, they had to go, they had to do something about this. They had to go out of their way to meet with Jesus, to worship Jesus, to show their devotion to Jesus. So if you're a Christian here today and you've trusted your life to Jesus... What changed when you met him? Did you have a radical response to him being the king? Because if Jesus really is the king, and he's really the one who's in charge, who's reigning and ruling, and he deserves everything, doesn't he? So that's the wise response. Let's look at the second, the worried response. 
This is the brutal part of the story, okay? This is where Herod is so worried that this king is going to take his power that he has to kill all of the males under two years of age in Bethlehem. It's horrific. It's a tragedy. It's terrible. But is it reasonable? Out of the three we're looking at, the wise, the worried, and the woeful, you're quite probably repulsed by this response. And quite rightly, it's Herod was a repulsive guy. Let me just give you a little taste of what Herod was like, because he was so nuts, he was so crazy, that if he was around today, Jeremy Kyle would pounce on him in an instant to get him on his TV show. It all starts in like sort of 44 BC, where a civil war breaks out across the Roman Empire, because Caesar's been murdered. But a couple of guys, one called Mark Antony, and the other called you have to say it like that because it sounds like a wrestler's stage name. He, these guys pursue after these murderers and they defeat them in a bloody battle. And this isn't good for horrible Herod because his family was paying the murderers to kill off Caesar. And so he's on the wrong side. He's on the losing side of this civil war. So he thinks, what can I do about this? What can I do to get... On the right side, he goes and finds this guy, Mark Antony, and he kind of sucks up to him. He comes up and he goes, Mark, how are you doing? Have you been to the gym recently? You're looking very good. I've been on holiday. You're tanned. By the way, Caesar's murder, nothing to do with me. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. You're looking great. You know, Mark, you're the man. You, you're the lovely, great man. And Mark Antony goes, wow, I like this guy. He's good. You know what? We should make him a king of some sort. How about king of Israel? Let's make him king of the Jews. They haven't got anyone dealing with them at the moment. So Herod, he's lied, he's cheated, and he suddenly becomes king, ruling over this nation. But he's got two problems. Problem number one, he's not Jewish. He was actually an Edomite. Now this is a problem for the Jews because way back from Genesis and right through the Old Testament you constantly see these guys as being a problem, like an enemy, uh, you know, a problem for the Jews. So he doesn't really go down well with them. This isn't a problem for Herod. He's got a plan up his sleeve. I know. I'll divorce my lovely Roman wife. I'll kick her out of the country with my three-year-old son and I'll just marry a nice Jewish girl. Problem solved. And while I'm at it, my new brother-in-law, he can be the chief priest of the temple. Hey, now he's in with the Jews and he's got a family connection to the religion. He's not just a pretty face, he's thinking it through. But after a while, um, he then has a second problem that he realises. He realises that Actually, I'm not descended from David. It seems to be a big thing for these Jews that you need to be descended from David. And actually, Rich spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago now about the genealogy at the start of Matthew, to the long list of names, and how it was showing that Jesus was not only descended from Abraham, but also David, and how he was the true king. But Herod has no such genealogy like Jesus. So he thinks, what can I do? I know, I'll destroy all of the Jewish records. That way they can't prove I'm not from David. Job done. Which is actually why if you're a Jew today, it's a bit pointless waiting for the Messiah because you can't prove 
that they're descended from David in the same way that Jesus was. But after, after this, um, he's, he, so he's, he's destroyed, the, he's destroyed um, the Jewish records. He's married a nice Jewish girl. He's got his brother-in-law in the temple running it. But he starts to think, hang on, my brother-in-law, he's getting a bit too big for his boots. He's getting a bit too powerful. What can I do about this? I know, I'll murder him. Job done. His wife then starts to cause him a bit of problems. Quite rightly so. He's just killed her brother, you know. So he thinks, oh, what shall I do? You can sort of see the your caption on Jeremy Kyle now, can't you? My husband, liar, cheat, murderer, dot, dot, dot. What will he do next? Well, what he does next is he takes her to court, tries her for treason, and has her executed. At the same time, he kills two of his sons because he thinks they might try and take my throne. What a nice guy. So... Herod ruled by might, not by right. Herod was really worried about losing his position of power that he worked so hard to get, that he would be willing to do anything to keep it. So when we read in verse 3, I think it's one of the biggest understatements ever when it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. You bet he was disturbed. He was more than disturbed. He was fraught. He was angry. He was fearful. He was terrified. He was so worried that this king of the Jews has just been born would take his position of power that he has to do something about it. Ultimately, kill all of the toddlers who are male in Bethlehem. So, it's a repulsive response. But is it reasonable? Second round of polling. Put your hand up if you think it was unreasonable. There's a few hands there. Put your hand up if you think it was a reasonable response. It's about half and half, isn't it? I'm going to go with it was a reasonable response. Hey, well done, you guys. Well done, Rich. But the thing is... Hang on, before I go on, I just want to clarify. I think it was a reasonable response, but I don't advocate killing two-year-old children. Okay? I don't think what he did was right, but I think it was reasonable. Because Herod realises the implications of Jesus as king. You see, in verse 2, when we read Jesus as the king of the Jews, quite often we read this as a nice, spiritual, fluffy kind of term for Jesus that's as threatening as a cat coughing up furballs. When in reality, Herod has a better theology than most Christians. Because he realises when when the Magi say, where is the one who's being born king of the Jews? He sees this for what it really is. An attack on his authority. Because if the king of the Jews has been born, then our Bible says he's the one who deserves all praise. He's the one who deserves all glory. He's the one who's going to rule forever. Basically, if Jesus is king, Herod isn't. So in some ways, Herod's response is really reasonable. What's unreasonable is when we come to church on a Sunday morning and we're worshipping in song, singing about Jesus being the king. And we, we come and we worship him and then the second we step out the doors, we live, we live the rest of our lives as if he isn't. We need to take the kingship of Jesus as seriously as Herod did. But 
with a wise response instead of a worried one. So we've looked at wise, we've looked at worried. This just leaves a woeful response. Now, the smart ones of you here have worked out by the process of elimination. We've had two reasonable. Wise, reasonable. Worried, reasonable. Woeful must be the unreasonable response. And you're right. But this response is actually done by the religious guys. You see, the chief priests were the ones who were in charge of the temple. And it was their job to offer animal sacrifices to kill them to point towards a saviour who's going to come and really deal with sin. And every day they're killing lambs and they're killing bulls as a picture of God sending a saviour. As a picture of God who's ultimately going to send his son to die on a cross to save the human race. But when they hear about this saviour, they can't be bothered to do anything about it. The Magi, they've travelled hundreds of miles and they get to Jerusalem. Bethlehem's just six miles down the road and they hear about it and they go, brilliant, we'll walk there. And I actually walked that distance, okay, back in December. I, I was on holiday in Israel and I decided, yeah, let's walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and back again. And you know what? It's all downhill. It's not far. It doesn't take long. But these priests, they can't be bothered to do it. The teachers of the law, they weren't much better. These guys, it was their job to open up their Bibles and to teach people what it really meant. And they knew about this king of the Jews because when Herod asks, they can immediately open the scriptures, point to it and say, he'll be born in Bethlehem. But they too can't be bothered to go and check it out. And you'll see this throughout Matthew's gospel. We're constantly going to meet again and again religious guys who meet together sing songs about the king together, who read passages of their Bible together about the king, they look the part. They talk the talk. But they don't walk the walk because they have a half-hearted, lazy response when it comes to Jesus as the king. And you know what? It can be the same with a lot of Christians who go to church. They come to church on Sunday. They worship the king. They sing songs to the king. They hear the Bible taught to them about Jesus the king. They look the part. They talk the talk. But Monday comes round, they don't walk the walk. They're just like the religious guys who have a half-hearted response to the king. A woeful response to the king. So are you living your life for King Jesus? Are you giving him a wholehearted wise response like the Magi, where Jesus gets total devotion, where he gets all worship and praise? Or are you giving a half-hearted, woeful response like the religious guys in Matthew? I believe God wants to challenge us today to respond to him with a wise response, where we're willing to give up anything and everything just to get close to Jesus. Now, I have to admit, I might be being a little bit harsh on these religious guys. Uh, because in verse 7, it does say that Herod, the second time he speaks to them, he calls the Magi in secret. So the religious guys, they might not have known Jesus is being born. Despite the fact that the Magi first come into Jerusalem 
proclaiming, where is this king of the Jews? Where has he been born? Despite that, they may not have known. But you know what? Unfortunately, ignorance is no excuse. And actually, these religious guys, they weren't totally ignorant because they had their scriptures. They had their prophecies. They knew something about a coming king, a coming Messiah. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't trust in Jesus, you definitely can't pull the ignorance card because at 11.20 on January the 30th, 2011, you're here and you're hearing about the real Jesus. And you have to respond to him. So what will your response be? Will it be woeful, like the religious guys, where you oppose Jesus by just doing nothing? Will it be worried, like Herod, where you try to get rid of Jesus because he takes some of because he takes place of your power? Or will it be a wise response where you devote your life to him? So those are the three responses here in chapter 2 of Matthew. Now let's look at the second part this morning and let's quickly look at what Jesus is really like and why we must respond to him. Let's look at the reason. So why must we respond to Jesus? Why must, what reason could there be? Well, the reason we should respond to Jesus is the whole point of Matthew's gospel. And it's the whole point of the current series we're doing at the ch- as a church. It's that he's the real Jesus. He's the real deal. In the second half of chapter 2, we see Jesus having to flee with his family into Egypt as he avoids being murdered in a massacre. And he can only return home once the threat's passed. And what Matthew's showing us is even in that bleak period of Jesus' life, He's showing us who he really is. He's showing us the real Jesus. And he quotes in verse 15 an Old Testament passage which says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And he's taken this passage from a prophet called Hosea. And Hosea, in its original place in the Old Testament, he's clearly talking about the nation of Israel and coming out in the exodus from Egypt. Now, the Exodus is kind of a story from way back in the beginning of your Bibles, and it's kind of starring this guy, Moses, who leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom. And here, at the start of Matthew's Gospel, he's at pains to show us that Jesus is the true and better Israel. Because Jesus' life mirrors the history of Israel except for with one major difference. Everywhere where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Matthew showed us in the very first verse of his very first chapter in his book how Jesus is the true seed of Abraham, how he's the one who blesses all the nations of the earth and whose offspring will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And here in 2 verse 15... He's naming Jesus as the true son of God. The one who's, owned, who's been prefigured by the nation of Israel in Exodus 4. See, Jesus' time as a refugee in Egypt mirrors that of Israel's slavery in Egypt. Jesus' survival of a massacre of infants mirrors that of Israel's, uh, which Pharaoh massacres the infants of Israel. And You see, Jesus' life follows the same path of Israel, except for 
He walks perfectly along that path, whereas Israel often veered off and strayed away. And we'll see it all throughout Matthew's Gospel. Over the next few weeks, we'll see how Jesus was baptised into the River of Jordan, like Israel was baptised into the Red Sea. We'll see how Jesus spends 40 sinless days in the desert compared to Israel's 40 sin-filled years in the desert. We'll even see how Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount as a New Covenant, New Testament version of how Moses gave the law to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And it's in Matthew's Gospel to show us how how the real Jesus is the true and perfect Israel. And this is really important for us to understand. Not just for Jews to understand, but for us to understand. Because Jesus has succeeded, not only where Israel has failed, but where each and every single one of us has failed to keep God's standards. Because God can't ignore his standards when we fail it. When we sin, when we mess up, he can't just sweep it under the carpet as if it never happened. But what he can do is he can look at Jesus, who's perfectly fulfilled the standards required, and he can credit Jesus' righteousness as if it was our very own. Because a Christian is saved by works, but he's saved not by his own works, but that of Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly and lived the perfect life. You see, when I was first a Christian, or first told about Christianity, I thought, I can't become a Christian because I've done too much wrong in my life. I couldn't stay being a Christian because I can't keep up rules, rituals, and things like that. Do you know what I needed to hear at that time? I needed to hear about the perfect, righteous life of Jesus Christ. How I'm not just saved through grace by faith, but how I'm saved by grace through faith in the one who has kept all of the law perfectly, Christ Jesus himself, the true king, the true descendant of David, the true Israel, the true saviour. So to finish this morning, what do we take away from chapter two? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to know that either you're condemned by the works you've done in your life, or you're saved by the works Jesus has done in his, by dying on the cross and taking away your sin. Because we've all fallen short of God's standard, and you can only be saved by Jesus. That's why we need to meet the real Jesus, why we need to encounter the real Jesus, and that's why we need to respond to the real Jesus. You can either respond woefully, like the religious guys, where you don't do anything about it and actually you're against him then anyway. Or you can attempt to get rid of him with a worried response like Herod. Or you can give him a wise response where you follow him with all your life like the Magi. And finally, last thing, if you're a Christian and you've started responding wisely to Jesus, are you still responding wisely? Are you still letting Jesus affect your whole life like it did the Magi? Are you giving Jesus the devotion, the praise and the worship which he deserves as the true king, as the true Israel who saved you by grace, by his perfect life, 
death and resurrection. I'm going to pray and then we're done here this morning, guys. Father, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, the true king, the true Israel, the one who was fully God and fully man, who was able to live the perfect life because each and every one of us has failed you. But Jesus didn't fail. Thank you, Jesus, that you lived the perfect life, you died the death we deserved, and that you are alive today, reigning and ruling, and that we can be saved by your grace. Amen.